This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, well, I um, uh, I, f- I feel I should talk a little differently to two people than I would talk to a hundred, but um, uh, what I wanted to do was to um, explain why um, we need to look at what's going on in the Middle East and South Asia and in fact other parts of the world somewhat differently uh, because of what's going on in the world at large and we have a habit of looking at particular things on their own and not seeing them in the larger context. And if we don't see them in the larger context, then we don't have, we're not comparing them with anything. If we don't compare them with anything, then we don't really understand what's going on because we always finish up implicitly comparing it with, with our own experience. And that doesn't really get us anywhere. Uh, so um, that's why it's important to understand globalization because globalization is the way we talk about the world as a whole. And the reason we use that term is that uh, everything is changing faster and faster. And we're not used to dealing with change. In fact, uh, social science has been very poor at explaining change. The, the best we can do usually is to compare two, two points in time and try to work out how things change from the first point in time to the second point in time. But that's very different from uh, studying change as it's happening and understanding why it's happening the way it's happening. So I've, I've put together some slides, um, though I've always been a little bit um, shy about showing PowerPoint slides ever since Steve Jobs, what did he say, something like, uh, anybody who knows what they're talking about doesn't need PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the, the usefulness of them is that it helps to focus the attention of the people you're talking to, um, as long as you don't do too many of them. And I'm not going to show any, uh, any pictures, actually, but simply um, uh, I've tried to uh, put on to a few slides some uh, key ideas that may stay in your, in your minds afterwards. Um, the first thing we have to do is to um, define our terms, what we're talking about. Um, I think uh, the easiest way for me to change slides is to... That, yeah. Should we turn a light off that's shining on? Um, the Arab Spring and the Taliban. Uh, th- we've been uh, thinking about the Arab Spring now for nearly three years. Uh, and um, so whatever it meant to us when it began, uh, it means something different now. The summer seems to be a long time coming. Uh, and certainly what we thought of as the Arab Spring before isn't the same now. Uh, but it's important to uh, understand... Uh, I thought there was just one f- the light that was shining on the screen making it difficult to see it. But uh, That's better, that's better. Um, no, no, it's just that there was a, a spotlight on the screen, and it, but it's, it's not there now. Thank you. Um, 
it's important to remember that there was a trigger for the Arab Spring. Um, and that was the self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunis on December 17th. So that's what, uh, two years and nearly 10 months ago. And what's amazing is that that set off such an enormous amount of political activity at the popular level in so many countries. And at the time, we more or less took that for granted. We accepted it for what it was. But it really needs to be explained. Why should one person terminating their own lives in one country uh, have led to an open revolt against the government in that country to begin with, and then beyond that in so many other countries? It's, it, it, we shouldn't take that sort of thing for granted because just it, it, it doesn't always happen. Uh, so it was a trigger that launched something, but. It, it, it's, um, one has to assume that there were, that everybody was ready for it to begin with. So um, I tried to put in two columns on one slide all the countries in which within the next two months protests broke out. And this is the order in which they broke out. This is the first column and I put in red the ones that have been causing most trouble and are still causing trouble. So after that burst of political energy in Tunisia, which got rid of the government in Tunisia, there were similar protests in Algeria, Lebanon, Jordan, Oman, Mauritania, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Um, I've put Egypt simply in capital letters because that has uh, had a special significance. And then they, uh, they continued to break out in Syria, Morocco, Sudan, Palestine, Iraq, Bahrain, Libya, and Kuwait. And again, it's the Syria, Bahrain, and Libya that have been the most significant. But that's an enormous amount of political energy within two months. Uh, but there's been very little effort to explain why one incident in one small country in Tunisia should have led to so much political energy bursting out and, and uh, a series of movements that have really changed the face of the Middle East and we still don't know where it's going to finish up. The summer's still not here. With the, the spring, we, we can't really call it a spring anymore but um, we don't know what it's going to finish up as. Uh, and it's obviously causing a lot of problems that are much more significant than just the Middle East. So that's what we've got to explain. Um, it's obvious that to begin with, those um, um, protests were protests against governments that had taken over in the f couple of decades after the withdrawal of Western colonial regimes. Um, so it was a, an in a protest of popular um, will against authoritarian governments that were in, the, in power because of Western support. It was a, they were secular movements, not religious movements. And they were, to some extent, anti-Western. But uh, before long, within the year, they began to change color and become very different, very different sorts of movements. 
they change from being secular to sectarian. Uh, and this is something, again, that hasn't really been explained. There is a lot of um, discomfort about it, uh, uncertainty about where it's leading. Uh, it makes it much more difficult for governments in the West who have interests in the Middle East to work out what their, how their policies should accommodate these, uh, um, what's going on. Uh, but the reason, I would suggest, for this change is that um, secularism is not a, a valid political banner against a, an authoritarian government that was in place because of Western support uh, and was being turned out. But a nationalism isn't available in the Middle East because nationalism is essentially not a, a Middle Eastern idea. It's not, it's not in Middle Eastern history in the way it is in Western history. But Islam is a very valid and potent banner against Western influence. And so Islam came to the fore as the main motivating force for continuing the rebellion against the authoritarian regimes. Um, in fact, if you notice, what happened in uh, each of these countries where the rebellion has continued and the government has changed was very similar to what happened in Iran in the 1970s. People don't think of Iran in the same um, uh, context as, these, as the Arab Spring because Iran is uh, obviously, it, it comes in, to, it gets reported in a very different way at the moment because of the nuclear um, concerns. But in fact, Iran went through a revolution in the, in the second half of the 1970s, uh, which was very similar to the Arab Spring. Uh, it had a different history, but it was similarly a popular protest against an authoritarian government which was in power because of Western support. And it was led by people on the left, in fact, communists to begin with, and secularists. Uh, but before it culminated in a complete change of government, it was totally hijacked by a sectarian movement. And, of course, it produced in February 1979 the establishment of the first Islamic Republic. And that Islamic Republic has been politically very successful, um, well, depending on what your criteria for success are, but it's still in place, and uh, it's still having a lot of um, influence on what is going on in the Middle East. Um, so, what began as a political protest against autocratic rule was overtaken by a struggle for Islamicization first, but as soon as the, the main struggle becomes a struggle to uh, establish an Islamic form of government because it would not be Western and it's the only non-Western ideology available. Uh, the struggle to Islamicize broke down into sectarian warfare in, in differing, diff to differing degrees in different countries. It's particularly bad in Syria. Uh, it's not so bad in Egypt, but it's a problem in Egypt. 
and it's a problem to some extent in every country because, well, a Khomeini um, who's well known and famous for a lot of things uh, and um, in, has been proclaimed the, the man of the 20th century by more than one source, I think, and I think really is a, a very important figure in the 20th century because he's the, the first person to lead a revolution, which was a classic revolution compared to the Russian, the French, the Chinese revolutions, but it was the first one that was, that, um, was led by a non-Western ideology. But the, one of the most famous things he said was that in Islam, everything is politics. Um, and that may sound cynical, um, but it's significant because the problem in Islam has to do with where the authority is for interpreting the text. And in Christianity, we got rid of that problem when we pulled the rug out from under the Pope, as, as I'm sure everybody in Villanova knows very well, in uh, 1517, or at least starting in 1517. But um, in... in um, in Islam, it's been a problem from the, the time, the, the, the death of the Prophet in 632 AD. And it continues to be a problem. Uh, and as um, everybody in the Islamic world becomes more aware of what is going on in the rest of the Islamic world, it becomes more and more of a problem. Because Islam, much more than Christianity, has always uh, had as part of its central principles the idea that every Muslim is a member of the same community, and that is a global community, uh, whereas Christianity from the beginning tended to be divided up under, under um, um, different local communities, which were their own bishops. So um, this is the way the Arab Spring has developed. Um, what about the Taliban? Um, Taliban is a word that we've got used to, but um, I think there's a lot of um, uh, confusion about what it really means. And it's, it's originally a, a, well, it is a, a Pasht, it, it's actually it's an Arabic word that is used in Persian, and, has, and this is an Arabic word with a Persian ending, but it's only used in this form in Pashto. Uh, so it, it's essentially a Pashto word. Uh, but it's a word that is used for students of traditional religious schools, madrasas, and uh, it became the, used as the name of a movement, a political movement in Kandahar in uh, um, 1994 for a similar reason. That is, somebody did something. It wasn't actually a suicide in this case. It was a, some, it was a, um, a religious, local, a local religious figure stepping in and um, taking over a situation in such a way that it um, caught the popular imagination and made people feel that um, Islamicization was the only way to deal with uh, the serious political problems in the country. Uh, however, uh, the, the, the Taliban form of Islamicization I noticed that it, uh, Villanova has done the same thing that Penn has done, is take clocks out of every room so that you don't know when. Uh, uh, so I have to keep my eye on. Um, 
I was asked to speak for 35 minutes uh, uh, or 40 minutes at most and leave time for questions and answers at the end. Um, the Taliban um, took over Afghanistan in gradually in, a pro in two years from 94 to 96 and uh, in, in, imposed an Islamic regime which was the Islamic regime the local religious figures um, thought was ideal. But it was an interpretation of Islam that grew out of, of a, a link with a religious school in India, Deoband in northern India. Um, but these, most of the leaders are people who had not had a proper education. And their ideas of what was Islamic was uh, to some extent Islamic, but it was um, colored by Pashtun tribal values, which were very different from the values of a lot of other people in the country and were somewhat exaggerated and uh, implemented, applied in a form that had never really been applied before. And this got them a bad image in the rest of the Islamic world. And they were recognized internationally only in Pakistan, uh, the UAE, and um, Saudi Arabia. And the reason those three countries recognized them was uh, a political reason, because they had uh, political interests in Afghanistan. The rest of the Islamic world didn't recognize them. The rest of the world didn't recognize their regime. And uh, they had serious financial problems and they rebelled against the West for that reason. And, and, and that's why, that's part of the reason why they um, supported Osama bin Laden, who actually was uh, their guest in their own terms anyway, though they didn't in fact have anything to do with 9-11. And they also destroyed the Buddhas up in Bamiyan because um, this part of Afghanistan uh, was, um, uh, I, won't, I don't want to say that it was a Buddhist area uh, 2,000 years ago, but uh, around 2,000 years ago, Buddhism moved north out of India into Central Asia and was practiced for a while in northeastern Iran, much of Afghanistan, and other parts of Central Asia, which later became Muslim. So there was these gorgeous, en enormous, uh, I can't tell you the measurements, but they're really gigantic Buddhas carved out of a rock face um, in, the, in the Hindu Kush mountains, which is the western extension of the Himalaya, Himalayas in central Afghanistan. And the um, Taliban um, smashed them um, with uh, um, cannons um, because they were idols and therefore against the principles of Islam. So that, of course, um, made the situation, international situation of the Taliban even worse. So. Uh, since the, uh, the American occupation of um, Afghanistan in October 2000, um, 2001, the uh, Taliban went underground, uh, and uh, a few years later, starting around 2005, they resurfaced again in different forms, in, in not only in Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan. Um, and so that's what, uh, and they have been uh, 
continuing to push a program that is anti-Western in each of those countries and even beyond ever since. Um, so the third term that we have to give some sort of meaning to in order to define our terms before we try to do some explanation is globalization. Uh, and globalization is another one of these uh, words which has become a, a sort of household word, but if you ask people what it means, it's difficult to get a straight answer or difficult to get the same answer from more than a couple of people at a time. Uh, it, it's interesting that globalization is a term that um, uh, was probably first coined in French around 1904. Uh, that's what the Oxford English Dictionary says anyway. And uh, was ta taken into English in the 1930s, but didn't get used very much, though it turns up here and there in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And then suddenly in the 1990s, it becomes a household word. Now that, again, is something that we need to understand, uh, because not only does globalization have a history, but our awareness of it has a history. And the fact that our, the history of our awareness of it is different from the history of globalizations makes us wonder whether the fact that we now think it's happening changes the rate at which it is happening or not. That is, do we have an effect on globalization by expecting it or not? Uh, certainly, it makes us think more in global terms. So um, uh, the, the reason I would suggest that uh, globalization so easily became a household term in the 1990s was that uh, between the Second World War and, the, uh, and 1991, we thought of the world in um, uh, bipolar terms. Everything was, had something to do with the competition between the West and the Soviet bloc. And then the Soviet bloc um, uh, disintegrated in 1991, and we, uh, that left us with the default image of a unipolar world, and it wasn't long before we realized that didn't work. And uh, the, the field was open for a new paradigm for explaining what was going on. And our bipolar image of the world had not taken account of the way the world was changing. We didn't think in terms of what would be the final result of bipolarism. Uh, and then when the... Um, so the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, we suddenly became very much more aware of how much had changed and how fast things were continuing to change. And globalization was a ready-made paradigm for making sense of that. And uh, an enormous number of people started writing about it in the 1990s, starting in 1992, actually. Um, and the idea of a global city was formulated, uh, and several other ideas related to the, how globalization works uh, were formulated in the next five years. So it's become a very powerful idea for making sense of how the world is changing, even though we don't understand what's making the change work. Um, and most of the explanations that you read and the number of books written with globalization in the title has been mushrooming since the mid-90s. And most of them focus on symptoms, that is, things you see in everyday life that make you think that it, it, 
the, the globalization must be in process. Um, or actual situations which are difficult to explain any other way instead of trying to understand causes or processes. And of course, nobody can, can agree about when globalization began. So what I want to do is offer you some causes, because I think this is the way we need to think about globalization. We need to have some sense of why it's happening now. Um, and what I'm going to suggest to you as a way of thinking of it, making sense of it, is that it, it, globalization is the result of accelerating population growth. That is, it, wouldn't, it would not be possible without accelerating population growth. However, that on its own doesn't explain it. Um, what you have to know in addition to the history of, of population growth and how it has accelerated, the fact that, for example, we hit the first billion of world population in um, 1810, the second billion around 1930, and then last October, seven billion, uh, an enormous rate of acceleration. But even more important than that is that starting about 7,000 years ago, the number, the proportion of world population living in cities has accelerated faster than world population as a whole. And uh, uh, 100 years ago, it was still only about 10% of people living in cities, 10% of the whole world population. However, in 2007, we crossed the 50% mark, and we expect that uh, in the next 50 years, we'll reach somewhere between 66 and 75%. Um, and this is, of course, uh, this changes the quality of human social life. Because 50 years ago, most people in the world lived in situations in which, in the course of their lifetimes, they would only know a few dozen other people, or uh, at most a few hundred. And now, how many friends do you have on Facebook? Um, and how it's not only how many friends you have, but the way that has changed the way you relate to everybody. So uh, 50 years ago, you related to people because they were your, a, a particular relative, they were a particular sort of friend, they were a, 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 a spouse, they were in a particular profession, and there were, there were expected ways, expected forms of behavior for every different type of relationship. And when you met somebody uh, in the street and were introduced, you could sense where they fitted into society because of the way they behaved and uh, the way they were dressed to some extent as well. But all that type of recognition has now um, uh, faded because the, our ability to classify in that way hasn't kept up with the numbers of people that we find ourselves interacting with in these more intense social situations. So all of us now um, interact with many more people in the course of a day. Uh, not only many more, but we interact, we go through many more interactions. So our social lives are socially more intensive. And this, it's the intensification of social life. 
I think, that uh, has changed the quality of social life and is the root cause of everything we put down to globalization. Uh, so accelerating population growth and accelerating uh, rates of urbanization is what started it. And that leads to social intensification, um, at which means that not only do the arenas within which people interact get, large, get denser and larger, but the arenas start to merge. But each arena has been growing at a different rate, and so is it a different um, uh, stage of social intensification when it comes into contact with another arena. And uh, be because all change produces winners and losers, and the, the uh, places where change is fastest um, uh, produces all sorts of opportunities. But when change suddenly takes off, a lot of people feel very threatened uh, and rebel against it and try to hold on to what they had in the past because the values that they had in the past is what they depended upon for making life, everyday life work. Uh, so they, they try to preserve the past, but in doing so they tend to idealize it, exaggerate what they remember of it. Uh, and this is in fact what uh, has happened in um, Afghanistan. Um, uh, uh, another thing, of, of course, which is relevant to the problem of the Arab Spring is that political agendas up until the middle of the last century were, were generally top-down political agendas. People did what they were expected to do. Since the middle of the last century, a larger and larger proportion of the population of the world as a whole has started to develop political agendas from the bottom up. Uh, whether that explains the failure of the US Congress to pass a budget or not, I'm not sure, but I think it has something to do with it. Um, so, um, globalization is not Americanization. Um, the interesting thing is that population growth is, fastest, is faster outside the Western world than inside. It's interesting that population growth, uh, which has been continuous ever since the beginning of our species, some 250,000 years ago, uh, didn't really be, uh, take off anywhere uh, in, until the 17th century, and that was in Northwestern Europe. Uh, and that's why the Western world got ahead of the rest of the world in the last two centuries, but not it was, it's only since 1800 that the West has had a dominating position internationally throughout the world. Uh, before that, it was the places that had um, really big cities like China and uh, the Islamic world at the end of the, the medieval period where you would find the most impressive technologies. Uh, but uh, the colonial period, what the colonial period did was that it it imposed a, a, an administrative straitjacket on a large proportion of the world which inhibited change and uh, um, did not lead to the sort of opportunities that encouraged population growth. But when the colonial regimes were withdrawn in the middle of the last century, population growth took off. So India had a population of 400 million in, in 
1947, and it's now close to 1.3 billion. Uh, China similarly uh, grew enormously over the last century, whereas so many Western countries, as you probably know, are barely maintaining their populations. In fact, some are, have declining populations. Um, what the, the, the really important um, milestone of change in the relationship between the West and the rest, as somebody has, uh, um, there is a book called The West and the Rest, which is a title I wish I had thought of myself, uh, was the new age of revolutions that started in the 1970s, which were a very different type of political revolution than what we'd had before. Uh, so the problem is that all this process of, of, of um, um, uh, globalization is uneven. And it's the unevennesses that are causing us all the trouble and underlie the problems that have led to what we started off by thinking of as the Arab Spring and the Taliban. Colonialism increased the unevenness by holding back the natural change in, uh, in a lot of societies. And communities that are un uh, at uneven stages of intensification um, uh, react against each other when they come into contact with each other and because of the way I interaction has become global that some of that reaction has also become global and that's why that underlies the motivation for international terrorism. And I think that we're going now going through the period of greatest reaction um, because uh, Globalization can't homogenize the world immediately, though eventually if we become a global community, we will be, though we'll never be, homo I don't think human beings are capable of all becoming the same. Uh, but what has been happening in recent decades that I haven't mentioned yet, which is particularly important, is that m the migration has increased. Um, and of course, uh, we, we, we're all liberals, uh, um, or at least we, most of us think we are. Uh, economic liberalism um, makes um, people want to do things across borders, but political liberalism makes us insist on borders because it, 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 political liberalism insists on equal rights, and you can't establish equal rights uh, or at least we have no means of establishing rights and protecting rights uh, uh, across borders. Uh, this is the big pol uh, political problem of globalization that we don't know how to um, manage rights um, that accept uh, within the boundaries of a nation state. Um, so uh, the problems are especially bad in the Middle East and South Asia because the, the, it's in, South, in the Middle East, South Asia, and Africa, which um, uh, were where change was inhibited most for uh, some amount of the period between around 1800 and 1960. Um, I don't want to be interpreted as being anti-colonial because I think the Western colonialism was simply an, a continuation of the sort of things that 
uh, a large number of different countries in the world had been doing for um, 2,000 years or more, 5,000 years in fact. Uh, but the, new, the particular effects of Western colonialism in the 19th and first half of the 20th century was that, that it inhibited change at a time when change had begun to accelerate so that when the Western colonial administrations were withdrawn, uh, the, um, the, the, um, the it, societies that became independent began to change much faster. And it's the, the result of that acceleration of change that's made them try to hold on to the past and to idealize the past and to react against the West. Um, I'm sure I'm beyond 35 minutes. Um, am I? The differential, so the most important factors are differential rates of population growth. Uh, and the, um, you may have come across a book called Europe and the People Without History. And um, I uh, want to write uh, a long review of that book because it's been extremely successful. And I will call my review um, the West and the people without investment. Um, but I don't want to be misinterpreted as a Marxist. Um, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, the economic infrastructure explains everything. What I'm suggesting is that um, until people come together in cities, they can't harness labor to innovate. They can't, they don't uh, uh, have enough um, association of ideas and different understandings of what's going on in the world and different types of knowledge to get um, ideas to innovate. So if you notice that we've since, uh, since we became aware of globalization, the rate of innovation in the Western world has skyrocketed. Uh, it's not just Apple and Microsoft, but there's, uh, and in fact, in, in the same thing is happening in China now the uh, uh, acceleration of innovation has been, um, has, uh, been part of this um, increased intensification. So um, the, it's the amount of interaction of people with different backgrounds and different experience which makes it possible for human beings to innovate faster and keep up with the problems of um, population in relation to habitat. Um, the, uh, the, and this is just um, a, a continuation of the same thing, uh, the, it's the, which lead, often leads people to ask whether things are going, they're going to get worse. And what I'm suggesting is that um, this is, in fact, the crucial phase that we're going through now. And it may get worse for a little bit, but before very long, it will get better because the unevenness will um, gradually even out. Uh, and the reason it will even out is that migration continues to increase. And although we build fences along the border with Mexico and other people build fences along some other borders, we try desperately to stop people crossing borders we're incapable of stopping them from crossing borders. And sooner or later, um, uh, some other uh, accommodation will have to be found. 
one of the first things that people predicted in the 1990s when uh, globalization became the paradigm was that it was the end of the nation state. And a, uh, a book was very soon published that argued that it can't be the end of the nation state because without a nation state, we've got no means of developing infrastructure. And without infrastructure, we can't have globalization. That was a very smart argument. Uh, but I think it's wrong because I don't know whether any of you have been to India recently. Uh, India still has the infrastructure that the British built before independence and hasn't done much to it since. And uh, uh, what's happened is that big corporations have started building infrastructure. Of course, they don't build it for the whole country. Uh, so there's big gaps in India's infrastructure, but that's in fact what is happening. And uh, American, the American government hasn't done much to uh, maintain our bridges since the 1950s. So there's, there are infrastructure problems in nation states as well. Um, so <coughs> I think that the, the, uh, the unevenness will even out. And the, what will happen is not that the world will become homogeneous, but that there will be continuous movement of population uh, and uh, a lot of differential change in different parts of the world. So you see that I assume that the future is already here, but it's just unevenly distributed. I don't know whether you've read anything by William Gibson, but he's one of the most um, successful science fiction writers uh, there is. Uh, and I think that this is a crucial phase of globalization, and that's why we're uh, b because of the rate of change and the amount of unevenness it's bringing into contact. Um, and that uh, it won't last, uh, it, it, we're not through it yet, it's going to continue for a while. And there are certainly very serious risks involved in it because yes, it could lead to a nuclear war or something like that. But I'm um, optimistic enough to think that we will be able to avoid that sort of thing. But there will be certainly problems in the next decade or so. Um, uh, and the, the biggest problems are going to be, continue to be in the Middle East, South Asia, and Africa because they were held back by colonial administrations. Um, and of course, in the Middle East and South Asia, or the, in Northern South Asia, uh, the problems are exacerbated by our historic religious confrontation between Islam and uh, Christianity and also our current strategic interests in those areas. So that's my text and that what is it was well, nearly 50 minutes. <laughs>